Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Naomi Soto, your co-host and health policy professional based in California. And I'm Brendan Steidle, your other co-host and communication specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning talk shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, March 14th, 2021. The Grammys were today. Beyonce. Dominated. Of course. (laughs) She's officially the queen of everything. Yeah, so we're going to be talking about that, the return of the monarchy here. Wait, of Beyonce or no, the... No, cr- she's the queen now of everything. Oh, okay. So we have Be- a monarchy and that is our politics. Oh, right, right, right. <laughs> I was just thinking, if you're talking about monarchy, we're talking about how it's completely no, falling no, no, apart no. after the... We are not talking about that. Okay, I could, but we won't. <laughs> so what are we talking about, Naomi? So on the shows that I watch, so I looked at State of the Union and Fox News Sunday, and I plan on talking about mostly the American Rescue Plan, the new COVID relief bill that was just passed, and then I'll be talking a little bit about helpful COVID explainers and a little bit about the crisis among migrants on the border. And I think that's it. I'm not sure. Brendan, what are you talking about? So I took a look at this week. I took a look at Face the Nation and Meet the Press. I will be talking a bit about the American Rescue Plan, particularly what Republicans are saying about that plan on the Sunday shows. And then I'll look, I'll do a deep dive into journalists and how they're asking their questions or whether they're asking their questions well. And around the COVID or around just, the, just the rescue plan? Just in the journalism segment. Oh, okay. And then I will take a brief look at what Meet the Press did where they looked at the well, issue of democracy. Particularly so. in, in some of these bills that Republicans are passing in state houses. Oh, interesting. To limit voting. But to begin, quality questionable, Naomi, what was, let's start with something questionable today. I just feel like it's that time of night. It's daylight savings, which makes no sense. It, let's hey, start hold with- on, hold on. Daylight savings is a great thing. It's everything else. It's standard time. It's the garbage time. We're finally it's on the, the good It's the back time. and forth. I don't really care either way. It's the back and forth that pisses me off. <sighs> We we made the rookie mistake of letting our daughter go to sleep late the night before daylight savings. What a disaster. The whole day has been pushed and it is now. Let's not talk about it. Anyway, so I kind of have like a twofer situation for my questionable. That's okay. Um, Because I've got a twofer for my quality. Yeah. I also (laughs) have another just pure quality. But my questionable is questionable quality is a moment that I saw on State of the Union in which Jake Tapper interviewed Jake Tapper interviewed Representative Veronica Escobar. She is a Democratic Congresswoman from Texas. She actually represents a district on the border. And he was talking to her specifically about kind of this new influx of unaccompanied minors and kind of looking at what Biden is supposedly doing. And 
there was this kind of hole back and forth as to whether or not there were more unaccompanied minors coming because Biden is now in office and thinking, kind of questioning the assumption that there might be some leniency and that's why there might be more people, more children coming. And Congresswoman Escobar essentially says, like, this is actually a problem that's been escalating for several months. It's not something that's just happening now because Biden is in office. And Jake Tapper kind of brings this question again towards the later towards the later half of the interview and uses a quote from the president of Mexico to kind of justify this exploration. And I thought it was I don't know. I found Tapper's question questionable, obviously, because it's in the questionable section of today's agenda. But I thought Escobar's answer was really stellar. So take a listen. Let me know your thoughts on both. But let me just ask you, the the president of Mexico, Lopez Obrador, said that they, they see Biden as the migrant president. And so many feel they're going to reach the United States. Is there not a degree to which whatever messages have been sent from the Biden administration, it is encouraging what is happening and is encouraging these kids to come, creating this tragedy. You know, Jake, here's what that kind of focus does. It obscures the bigger picture that many of us, myself included, have been talking about for years. The flows The the flow of humanity ebbs and flows. Mm -hmm. There, as I mentioned, in April, we began seeing, in April of 2020, under the harshest of conditions, a Trump administration and COVID, we still saw people arriving at our front door. I'm just quoting the president of Mexico. I, no, I got you. And I and but but even the president of Mexico, that comment obscures what we have to do, yeah. which is what I believe President Biden finally will achieve, which is address the root causes of migration. We're going to be having this conversation year in and year out yeah, until we have leaders in this hemisphere who are willing to work together. I hope President Lopez Obrador works with uh, the presidents of the Northern Triangle, President Biden. Uh, we need to get Canada involved. Yeah. This is a challenge that has that Thank we've so been much, seeing Congress. for several years. It's not going away Thank you until so we fix it. Thank you so much, Congresswoman. We really appreciate you coming on the show today. It's kind of awkward the way he shut her down there at the end. Yeah, when she actually had a really excellent answer for his. I, it seems almost trolly. His question is is my frustration. He uses this quote from the president of Mexico, Lopez Obrador, and says, you know, they they say he's the he being Biden is the migrant president. Maybe Biden is the problem. And what I thought the congresswoman does really well here is she doesn't take the bait. She doesn't push back on the argument. She doesn't make this like this is not Biden's fault. This is this has been happening forever. She actually tries to focus the conversation on what needs to happen to for there to be systemic changes to decrease the number of migrants who are arriving to the border. But that is kind of a very wonky answer. It requires a lot of insight. It requires a lot of understanding of the region. Frankly, research that I don't think Tapper did or his team didn't do and were not prepared to have. But she literally represents a district on the border. I'm sure she understands it intimately. And she's using these kind of few minutes on national television to say, actually, like, let's not use these hot takes. Well, I mean, 
I have huge problems with Jake Tapper's question because like you say, it is it is sort of trolly. It's more than sort of trolly because he says, oh, oh, and then he hides behind it. He says, well, yeah, I'm, just, I'm just quoting. I'm just quoting. Uh, well, you know what? The that's what trolls do. The president of Mexico didn't say that the messages Biden is sending is creating a tragedy, right? Like treating a humanitarian crisis with humanity does not create tragedy. I think what drives me crazy about this is journalists who use this type of like, quote unquote, hard hitting question to talk about complicated situations that they're actually not taking the time to learn about. Like, that's the part that pisses me off the most. And like, you actually have a woman here who would be willing to have that conversation with you if you put in the work. But he wants to just try to have this like hot take question and try to get her. Like, really? And I think there's, I, I think this is some of it, maybe, is the degree to which Donald Trump has melted the brains of regular human beings, including journalists, because President Trump would say incendiary things, direct things, and those would cause actions at the border, right? Like he would say terrible things. And Biden is saying good things or saying things about humanity or or basically his administration's policy towards the border has more humanitarian pathos to it and goals to it. But Biden is not saying everyone in Mexico come to the U.S., right? That's the characterization that Republicans make of, of Biden and Democrats, but that's not what they're saying. And Tapper knows that that is not what they're saying, right? And yet... Somehow he wants to hold Biden responsible for this, even though Biden is not sending any message directly or indirectly that encourages people to come. I'm not disagreeing with you, but my point here is not about whether what Biden said or what Trump said or the atrocities that Trump had in his administration or the humanity in which Biden is supposedly going to do it. Like, that's not my point. My point is journalists who want to have supposedly policy conversations and don't use questions that go to the policy, the policy itself. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And that's what I think she does really effectively, that she doesn't engage in the hot take conversation. And I think she does a good job of saying, like, we're actually missing the point. And it's a signpost to the audience to say like don't pay attention to this part this part doesn't matter right let's get to this instead right Right. i agree she has a a really important insight which is it is going to go up and down up and down every so often until it's solved right and so yeah there might be different reasons why it's going up or down but that's not really the point the point is we need to solve this problem right well put brendan what is your questionable moment So my question moment, very simple. It is a question from George Stephanopoulos to Janet Yellen. She is the Treasury Secretary. First Lady's Treasury Secretary. Yes, absolutely. And I'm just going to play the question, and then maybe you, Naomi, will tell me what you think is maybe questionable about it. Mm. Ready? Mm-hmm. Okay, here we go. Secretary Yellen, thanks for joining us this morning. You just said that the, the relief package is the most important thing we could do to get on a sustainable path. This is a massive package. Are you confident it can be administered effectively? And as big as it is, is it enough to do the job of recovering those 9.5 million jobs lost during the pandemic? Well, it seems like there's like six parts to that question is my first frustration. It, that's exactly it. Like, what the hell is this? He provides other info in the beginning, but it's like these are two 
very different questions to start out. It's not a, if this is true, then here's my follow-up. I'm going to give it to you directly, which again is also a really bad thing to do. But it's like, these are two very different questions. So this is bad for the guest who has to figure out what question to answer. Which, if they're a good guest or a shady guest, we'll just pick the parts that is easier to answer. Right. And it's bad for the audience who can't figure I, I out... I don't even remember what the first what part ...what the was. conversation is. It's just like, no. No, thank you. <laughs> like, I don't Try think again, so. George. Yeah. <laughs> what, is, what is this? This is not how it goes. You know, George is asking this question like he's the audience member who's been watching the, the, the panel... You know what I mean? And someone, the, the audience lines up and they're like, uh, yeah, Oh my God, hi. those questions my are always question so is, bad. Uh, are you confident it can be effectively administered? And then also my second question is, as big as it is, uh, is it enough <laughs> to do the job of recovering the 9.5 million jobs lost due to the pandemic, taking into account what you said about how it's the most important thing we could do to get on a sustainable path with this package? That's... <laughs> Can you answer that, please? Thank you. <laughs> and then they put their microphone down or someone takes it away from them yeah. and they just kind of stand there awkwardly. So sidebar, Brendan and I love film festivals and we get so frustrated <laughs> when people ask crappy questions. No, no, no. Here's what we get frustrated with. This is a totally different thing. What we get frustrated with is they're supposed to be standing up there asking a question and they go up and they say like, when Robert De Niro drops the spoon in the soup, I read somewhere that he doesn't like soup. And it's like, what? What does this have to do with the movie making? Exp- like, the best one was when Billy Crystal was like, I need a better question. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was at the end, right? And then he's like, we're not ending on that. On yeah, that yeah, question. it was like crappy questions. It's like, like, I didn't drive out here from LA to end on that question. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah. Anyway, let's get back to George's bad question. Well, anyway, I think we said what we have to say. It's Still, stop answering two questions, asking two questions at once. And two long ass questions. Yeah. yeah, trash. Brendan, do you have a quality moment to bring us up? Oh, okay, sure. Well, let's go back to Janet Yellen, okay? Oh, okay. So that was the, what his, a journey. That was how he started the interview. And here is the end of the interview. It's actually a very interesting discussion. And I, I give most of the quality to Yellen. But, hey, George brought it there. So good for him. Take a listen to this. It's really about the question of how they're funding this relief package where the money is coming from, and the answer is it's not coming from anywhere. It's just it's just adding on to the deficit. But Yellen's kind of like, uh, that doesn't really matter that much. Back in 2017, you testified that long-term budget protections should keep people awake at night. The situation is worse now. Federal debt expected to exceed GDP for the first time since World War II. So are you getting any sleep? Um, I am getting sleep. I've uh, My views have changed somewhat about fiscal sustainability, um, in part because what we've seen all around the world is a trend toward very low interest rates. Um, interest rates in the United States are much lower than they were in past decades, and you see that in all developed countries around the world. And it reflects structural trends that are not going to disappear soon. And um, I think about, when I think about the burden of debt, I think about it mainly in terms of uh, the interest payments that uh, the government needs to pay on those on that debt. And in spite of the fact that the debt has increased substantially, 
on interest payments relative to the share to the size of the economy have remained quite low, um, no higher than they were back in 2007. But of course, we have to make sure that the economy, that the budget is on a sustainable path. And uh, this is something that we can afford. In the longer run, we need to get deficits under control to make sure that our fiscal situation is sustainable. Sustainable, she said at the end there. So I actually found this really interesting because we hear a lot of concern about deficits out there. We hear about deficit hawks, and uh, it's interesting. There's deficit hawks. What's on the other side of that? Bernie Sanders. (laughs) Well, no, because like the the term, just the term, it's like, you know, there's war hawks and there's war doves, right? Or, or peace doves or doves, right? There's hawks and doves when it comes to, to defense. But what is the opposite of a deficit hawk? I don't know. A spending... Liberal wish list? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. But anyway, we hear a lot about that. And here is Janet Yellen, extremely respected monetary thinker, saying, look, yeah, the, Chill out. the deficits might be going up, but what we got to pay... It doesn't really change much. So what does it matter? It's kind of like we, you know, we've got a credit card and we got to pay the same pretty much every month, no matter how much we add to it. It's like hmm, that's okay. really bad credit Great. card <laughs> 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 payment policy, but yeah. But there is a, you know, if anyone interested in this discussion more, I would encourage them to look into what's called modern monetary theory, which has been sweeping the liberal progressive side of thinking, which is kind of a a more beefed up version of this where it doesn't really matter how much deficits we run and we're not really spending enough to help the economy because we can kind of spend for free. And there is a book called The Deficit Myth by Stephanie Kelton that doesn't go into super great detail on proving that this actually works, but does provide an interesting discussion. So I would encourage people to take a look at this. It's again, it's like a theory where it's kind of like, string theory and physics for it's like oh is it really real or does it help us explain anything or is it just a fantasy naomi what is your quality moment this week so my quality moment pure and simple is me fangirling over stacy abrams and i mean there's a lot of reasons why i could but listen there is just very few politicians out there right now who are as polished as smart, as just gives the most kick-ass answers every time she opens her mouth and she's given a microphone. Like, goodness, I I don't know if she's like naturally this like punchy or if she just does incredible prep. I, I don't know. I don't care. She's amazing. And she was on State of the Union talking to Jake Tapper Take us into this one response where she where she looks at some of the most recent voting restrictions that are happening in Georgia and she packs so much into this answer and somehow it's not overwhelming. It's quite the feat. So Republican state lawmakers in your home state, Georgia, have introduced almost two dozen bills to make it more difficult to vote. They are going to end no excuse mail in voting, which has been there since 2005. They're going to reduce voting on Sundays, uh, ask for stricter ID requirements, take away drop boxes. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer in D.C., he called this effort by Georgia Republicans, quote, racist, plain and simple, unquote. Do you agree? Uh, And is there any way for Democrats to stop these efforts? Well, first of all, I do absolutely agree that it's racist. It is a redux of Jim Crow uh, in a suit and tie. 
We know that the only thing that precipitated these changes, it's not that there was a question of security. In fact, the Secretary of State and the governor went to great pains to assure America that Georgia's elections were secure. And so the only connection that we can find is that more people of color voted and it changed the outcome of elections in a direction that Republicans do not like. And so instead of celebrating better access and more participation, their response is to try to eliminate access to voting for primarily communities of color. And there's a direct correlation between the usage of drop boxes, the usage of in-person early voting, especially on Sundays, and the use of vote by mail and a direct increase in the number of people of color voting. Extremely succinct and direct on that on that answer. Yeah. Making her case. Making her case. Like I first of all, you have really great lines that get in your brain. I that when I first heard it's a redux of Jim Crow in a suit and tie, I was like, oof, she's not playing around. And then she talks about how Republicans defended the voter integrity or the election integrity of the 2020 election in Georgia as proof of their work mattering is just, it's so smart. It's so effective. And I mean, I had a, a couple other clips that I was going to share, but we're, we're running long on this intro, so we don't have to, but just listen to Stacey Abrams, even, even if you don't agree with her, just for the sheer message discipline that she has in every single interview. It's quite astounding. Yeah, she is. She is excellent at it. There are others that are excellent at it as well. I suppose, uh, maybe. Well, it's funny you note this because I was so close to making my quality moment a really well-framed answer that Nancy Pelosi gave. Mm. And I decided against it because we've talked about that in the past and there were there were so many other quality things I wanted to talk about. But it's kind of funny that we had these two women on who just are really good at, you know, answering questions so fully that I feel like sometimes there's no room for a follow-up. They just directly, here's the answer. Yeah, they gave it to it completely. Yeah, a complete answer. Uh, I do have one more quality moment. Oh, okay. And it's important. And I think it should be like shouted from the rooftops. And somehow I missed it last week, not surprisingly, because I had family in town. But listen to this. Oh, and of course, this is Margaret Brennan talking to Scott Gottlieb. Pfizer, where you serve on the board, their CEO said this week that he's seen the vaccine block 94% of asymptomatic infections. Is that the final word showing that if you're vaccinated, you cannot spread the virus? It's an important data point. I mean, this comes out of real world evidence from Israel and all of the evidence across all the vaccines now is pointing in the direction that these vaccines reduce asymptomatic infection and reduce transmission. Um, we've always believed that they're having that effect. We didn't know the full magnitude of that benefit, but all of the incremental uh, evidence coming out suggests that the impact on the reduction in transmission could be quite strong. And if that's the case, the vaccine creates what we call dead-end hosts. A lot of dead-end hosts meaning people will no longer be able to transmit the infection. And just like you get exponential spread on the way up in an epidemic, if you can get a whole bunch of immunity in people where they can no longer spread the infection, that has a compounding effect on reducing the scope of the epidemic. So for how long have we been asking and wondering, is it the case that people who have the vaccine can spread the virus? And here is pretty strong evidence that Margaret Brennan is citing and Scott Gottlieb is confirming or at least nodding towards that suggests 
if you're vaccinated, you're not really spreading the virus that much, even asymptomatically. Yeah, this is very, very exciting news. And this coupled with the new rules by the CDC for people who have been vaccinated, I think it's one in five Americans right now who are eligible have been vaccinated. And I'm just so relieved to see that light at the end of the tunnel feel like it's getting bigger and bigger. Absolutely. All right, Naomi. So politics or journalism? That is the question for you. I briefly want to talk about an interview that I saw on State of the Union with Dr. Fauci as my something in journalism. I thought Jake Tapper here had some really amazing questions that I really appreciated. So the first example is a really wonderful question that is both reflective and asked Dr. Fauci to be a bit predictive too. And you don't see that a lot on the Sunday news shows. Usually it's one or the other, but a good question that asks the guests to look back and help us understand the future is my absolute favorite. So we've been living with this virus now for a year. There's still so much we do not know about the coronavirus. What is the biggest outstanding question for you about this virus? Well, I mean, there's so many things, but the one that's obviously the looming one is the issue of what impact these variants are going to have. You know, we know that when you get a very high degree of antibodies resulting from the vaccination, that even though it isn't specifically directed against the variant, that high level of antibody can protect to a certain degree and certainly protect against severe illness, hospitalization and death. So the best way that we can avoid any threat from variants is do two things. Get as many people vaccinated as quickly as we possibly can Mm -hmm. and to continue with the public health measures until we get this broad umbrella of protection over society that the level of infection is very low. You know, there's a tenet in virology that's so true, Jake, and that is viruses don't mutate unless they replicate. And replication means it's spreading around in the community. If you can blunt that, you'll be blunting the evolution of mutants for sure. Yeah, so I I love this question of what's still outstanding. Even though we've been in this for a year, there's still pockets of unknown, pockets of experiences and twists and turns in this pandemic that public health experts that scientists are still trying to understand and requires us as the American public to be patient with that scientific learning. Yeah, it's it's an interesting answer from Fauci because it's not the one that, that I might expect him to answer, you know, in terms of the biggest unknown. For me, the biggest unknown is long-term effects yeah, of COVID. Yeah, I was thinking, my, I, that's you what know? I thought originally he was going to say. Yeah, like how is it going to affect people who, who had it, seem to have recovered, but do they still have these long-term issues? Yeah. And it's hard to know, right? But yeah, this, you know, the variants, that's a very, very good point. I mean, I guess my follow-up would be, okay, but if we do kind of get to that broad umbrella level of protection here in the United States... But the virus is still spreading elsewhere in the world. Yeah. And there are variants developing in places like, I don't know, the UK or South Africa. And then they arrive in this country. Well, I think that's the whole point is what's the impact these variants are going to have. Yeah. Right. Like we don't know how those variants are going to impact the American population. But the reality is, yes, if we can reduce the production of variants here in the United States. Or globally. 
that we, will help globally as right, well. Yeah. Right. I just real briefly, I just also wanted to sh- also look at another excellent question that Jake Tapper had. It was well-intentioned, was not snarky, well-phrased, and I think raised an important clarification that I think the American public is wondering about. So let me ask you about that, because Biden said there's a good chance Americans will be able to gather in backyards and neighborhoods for cookouts on the 4th. The CDC already has guidelines for gathering outside with masks and distancing. So can you explain the difference? Does that mean people will be able to return to a sense of normalcy without masks, without distancing on the 4th of July? Well, yes. First of all, to be a greater degree of confidence. When you have a situation where you have 70,000 infections per day. I mean, that is a feeling that you don't feel very secure about mingling, about having people around feeling comfortable about it. If by the time we get to the 4th of July, with the rollout of the vaccines, we get the level of infection so low, I'm not going to be able to tell you exactly what the specific guidelines of the CDC are, but I can tell you for sure they will be much more liberal than they are right now about what you can do. Just really helpful. Like that question, I think, is important for a lot of people who are vaccinated, who are maybe in good weather places or they're looking forward to spring and just want to know what they can safely do. People are looking for a break to this madness, are looking forward to an end. And it doesn't mean they are reckless. It lo- means they're looking for guidance. Yeah, absolutely. Can I just flag or bookmark a little thing that I think would be really helpful if Fauci could do. And I understand the carefulness of being disciplined on your message, not getting your cart ahead of the horse, etc, etc. But he uses a lot of words like, you know, more liberal guidance, we can expect more liberal guidance, or he says things, you know, to specific questions, like there was a question that was asked by Chuck Todd about when people can have weddings indoors. And his answer was, you know, that's going to be within a reasonable period of time. Different people have different (laughs) definitions of what a reasonable period of time is. You know what I mean? Like if you're waiting for someone to pick you up at the airport, a reasonable period of time is like a half an hour. If you're waiting to have a wedding, maybe it's six months. I don't know. But if he could just give a little bit more sunlight into what those words mean to him, I think it would be very helpful. And I think these hosts can do a good, better job of trying to pin down some really rough estimates of what that means, like a reasonable period of time. What is that? Well, there were, I don't know, I don't remember Tapper's question specifically, but there were some inquiries into the guidance that the CDC is putting out and things that we're seeing in terms of how safe it is for people who are vaccinated, changes in the recommendations that schools have to be able to safely have in-person learning and and a variety of other angles around what is safe now in, in COVID world. And Fauci kind of gave some answer to the effect of, you know, I don't want to speak for the CDC, but they are, you know, based in science. And so they try to follow the evidence. And when they can't follow the evidence, they try to model. And when they can't model, they ask for patience. It's like there's a very specific criteria. And as information and as scenarios change, then they change their recommendations. But that it was trying to give context to the conservative rationale of the CDC that I think we hadn't, or at least that I can remember, haven't seen so explicitly, which if you would have done that six months ago, people might feel a lot differently about 
these restrictions and not understanding what they mean. But but anyway, I thought the overall Tapper asked some really effective questions. Brendan, where to next? What do you want to talk about? Well, if we're on journalism, let's let's stick with journalism. Let's talk about questions that were asked because that's kind of the focus of my journalism segment this week. And I wanted to compare and contrast Margaret Brennan with George Stephanopoulos. But really what I wanted to do was say Margaret Brennan kicked ass this week. She did a damn good job on her show. And the questions she asked were about accountability. It's about holding people in power accountable for action. Not words, not opinion, action. I mean, this is... You were to open up Margaret Brennan's heart, it would say accountability. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's exactly right, and that's what—that's what—that's the type of questions that should be asked. So, with that prelude, let's take a listen to the question that George Stephanopoulos asked Nancy Pelosi, and in this instance, he's talking about the impending crisis at the border. Which, by the way, I will note that last week Fox News Sunday was the only show talking about this issue. And now everyone's talking about it. So they were uh, one step ahead in that. Well, Republicans have been clamoring about this all week. And of course, Fox News Sunday is going to be lifting up the complaints of Republicans first. Right. They have their reasons, but I'm just saying they they were a step ahead. Sure. So here is George talking to Nancy Pelosi. Let's talk about the situation at the border. We've seen a huge surge in migrants crossing the border since January. The number of children in custody higher than it was than its 2019 peak during the Trump administration. Your colleague, Verona Cascobar of Texas, called the conditions there unacceptable. She was there on Friday. Is she right? What more must be done? Uh, Well, I'm sorry, I didn't hear who you said. Veronica Escobar, Congresswoman uh, Veronica Escobar, our colleague uh, from representing uh, uh, El Paso. And yes, it is. The, actually, the facts are these. There are more children, uh, about six, 700 more children, unaccompanied children coming o- over the border. Uh, the, uh, this is a humanitarian challenge to all of us. Uh, what the administration has inherited is a broken system at the border, and they are working to correct that in the children's interest. And uh, I always like to quote our friends in the evangelical movement. At one of our rump hearings we had before we had the majority, uh, uh, the representative said to us, the United States refugee resettlement program is the crown jewel of American humanitarianism. So we have certain responsibilities that we must honor. We have to have a system uh, that accommodates that. And that is what the Biden administration is in the process of doing. Let's talk about security on Capitol Hill. So I wanted to play a bit of that because Nancy Pelosi provides a lot of information. And we also we, we had to cut this because it was a very, very long answer. But it's a long answer to a question that doesn't really hold her very accountable. Right. I mean, revisiting the question, the exact thing that George asked was, is Escobar, Representative Escobar, right in saying that the conditions on the border are unacceptable and what more must be done? What more must be done? By who? I mean, what George is saying, what more must be done is the question, but like, there's no subject to that question, right? I mean, 
is he is George saying that what more does Biden need to do? What more does do you need to do, Nancy Pelosi? What more does the Congress need to do? Or do you have a bill that you're ready to push forwards? When is that bill going to be, you know, shown to the American people? When do you expect it to be passed? There there's no actual accountability attached to this question. It's just a tell me what you think about this. It's a question that required very little research. Not only little research, but from Pelosi, it requires very little specifics in terms of what she's going to do about it. And that is what is extremely frustrating to me. What did Margaret Brennan ask? So Margaret Brennan didn't talk about this issue directly. Oh, okay. But I do want to show the way that she asked questions, the level to which she held people in power accountable in a myriad of interviews this week. So here, for example, is Margaret Brennan speaking with Mayor of New York City Bill de Blasio. And take a listen to how she's just like, what are you doing about these problems in this recovery? Before I let you go, I have to ask you about this really troubling spike in hate crimes in New York City. It's, it's the city with the most significant spike in crimes against Asian Americans. You have a hate crimes unit. How's this happening? Why aren't you better prepared for this? Well, we created a hate crimes unit that is very strong in the NYPD, and we've been doing education and outreach. And actually, in most areas, thank you need God, to do more. Margaret, hate crimes did go down, except with Asian Americans, it's been horrendous and disgusting. So what we're doing, we have a, a task force made up of Asian American police officers out in communities, finding the people who did it, making sure there's mm-hmm. consequences. So true exasperation from Margaret Brennan. How is this happening? Why weren't you better prepared for this? Like, you should be fixing this. And also with the, you know, extra detail for the viewer that New York City has a hate crimes unit. Right. It's not just saying, why doesn't your police department do better? It's saying, like, why isn't this specific unit that's trained on this doing better? Oh, and absolutely, right? Because if she hadn't done the research or hadn't mentioned that in the beginning, his answer might be, oh, we are doing something about this. In fact, we have a whole hate crimes unit. We have a whole task force. But she makes it like... Even with your task force, this is not great, Sam. Right. Exactly. And then here's one final example. This is her speaking to the COVID-19 health equity chair under the Biden administration, Dr. Marcella Nunez-Smith. And this is, oh my gosh, this is such a great example of repeated questions about accountability related to accountability. So one of the areas where we are still seeing uh, hesitation is uh, according to our CBS News poll, it is among partisan lines. Uh, in fact, unwillingness to get the vaccine is higher among Republicans, specifically younger Republicans. I'm wondering what your plan is to reach them. But, but how do you persuade people who uh, aren't supporters of the president? Are you going to launch public service ads here, reaching out to celebrities who may appeal to these constituents? I mean, what is the way in? And to your point, we're getting ready to launch that national public education campaign. And we'll work closely with trusted messengers, influencers, and others to get to everyone, whether the hesitancy is, is based in, uh, in when political will that view be? or anything else. Uh, so we are on the cusp of launching that national public education campaign. So how do you actually measure whether what you're doing is successful or not? 
So we, again, will keep pushing to get better, more complete uh, data around variables that are important and relevant, like race and ethnicity. Um, and alongside that, we have been using other equity metrics, and so things like social vulnerability and zip code, and we can do those analyses now uh, to keep track. And but we have the already communicated. I think our first step in this process has been to work very collaboratively with uh, with states and locals. We're working to overcome any challenges that might exist in terms of just data systems and infrastructure. These are great. These are the types of interruptions that just prove she her brain is on fire in listening to the responses across her desk. Yeah. I mean, it's just accountability, competency. I just love all of these specifics, you know? What are you doing about this? Are you gonna really address it directly? When is that gonna be? How are you actually gonna measure whether you're successful at this? And oh, you've got an idea? Well, can't the president mandate it? Can't you just get it done? Just do it. <laughs> I love it, love it, love it, love it. And that is, that is the type of questions that we have to demand answers from of our elected officials of anyone in power being interviewed on these shows and too often it's just what's your opinion on this how do you feel about this how will it be better so that is my spotlight in journalism all right naomi that takes us to politics what in politics are we talking about this week i don't think it should be much of a surprise really Yeah, so I wanted to talk about the American Rescue Plan, officially signed this week by President Biden. Stimulus checks are hitting bank accounts this weekend, literally the last few days. And I wanted to focus on two interviews that I saw on Fox News Sunday that really focused on this rescue plan, the American Rescue Plan. Chris Wallace spoke with Senator Bill Cassidy. He's a Republican from Louisiana. And he also spoke with Senator Chris Murphy, a Democrat from Connecticut. And a few things just kind of overall. I thought Chris Wallace in general, like this is the types of stories, the types of moments that he does really well in. A bill has just passed or it's about to pass. There's a lot of controversy. He tries to dig deeper than some of the conversations that are typically happening in news interviews. And it's also very numbers heavy because there's a cost like this is kind of checks a lot of the Chris Wallace ideal talking, you know, Chris Wallace topic. What stood out to me specifically in the Senator Cassidy interview is that I thought Chris Wallace had really good questions, but really incomplete or missing follow-ups. So take a listen to this question, which I thought was really well done, in which Chris Wallace found out how much money the people of Louisiana were getting and asked Senator Cassidy if he was glad they're getting it, essentially. According to the White House, stimulus payments will go to 91% of the adults in your state of Louisiana and 93% of the children. And the child tax credit will go to the families of one million kids in Louisiana. Senator, are you saying the people of your state don't need that money? 
First, let me say Republicans offered an alternative which included that sort of money for the people who needed it. So, yes, economic help was needed for families as well as for businesses. Uh, We're on board with that. You would have had bipartisan support for that. But you know what it also includes? It includes $1.9 billion to give stimulus checks to inmates. Now, inmates are already paid for by the taxpayer. They, they, they can't stimulate the economy unless they're purchasing contraband. Uh, so here we have 1.9 billion stimulus checks going to inmates. I put up an amendment to strike that, and it was, it was unanimously opposed by Democrats. That's the sort of thing which should not be included. But you would agree, hundreds of billions of dollars go in economic stimulus to people and to businesses that have been hit hard by this pandemic. Yes, I agree with that. Now, let's put that in perspective. The payroll protection plan money that was put in the December bill is adequate for the time being. This, the, the additional money isn't so much for now, it is for going further out, except there are some groups um, uh, in which they specifically target those which are politically favored. And so the dollars are there now for the need which is there now. A lot of this money is actually for the out, uh, the out period. So kind of a lengthy response there, but I wanted to include it because I thought the, question, the initial question itself with the number of, uh, what is it, like 90% plus of adults in Louisiana are getting this additional support. And it just goes to show how much, how great the need is in Louisiana. And Senator Cassidy gives an interesting answer saying that, you know, Republicans, if it was just this level of financial support to people, that they would have been for it, but it was all this extra stuff. But I just wish... Chris Wallace would have asked, so you think the need wasn't so great? You were willing to risk your people not getting anything right? because you had issues with this smaller portion of the bill. Right. And it's almost like, are you, it sounds like you were willing to say good is the enemy of great, right? And your your constituents would, wouldn't have gotten anything. And there wasn't ever that kind of level of, you guys are not in power. This is what you had to vote on. And there were significant benefit for your constituents and you decided not to. So it was just interesting to see such thorough questions with so many missing follow-ups. And this is just kind of one example. There was a few in this interview that had me kind of scratching my head. Well, also Cassidy opens himself up to lots of questions here because he has two different answers. In his first answer, he says... As you mentioned, Naomi, Republicans were all for giving that money uh, to folks, even though the reality was, and he even says it here, money for the people who needed it, right? Because Republicans wanted way more targeted monies to go out, not to go out to, you know, what is Chris Wallace said here, 91% of the adults in, in the state. But anyway, at one point he says Republicans were for that. And then the other side, he says, but the money, we already gave money to who needs it in the payroll protection plan. So we don't need this stimulus, right? He's making two different arguments in this, in this, in his own, in his own answer. Yeah, very interesting. And couple this with the interview that we saw Chris Wallace have with Senator Chris Murphy. And I thought, More than anything, like there were strong questions to Chris Murphy, but I thought Murphy's answers were better than Wallace's question and really demonstrates the 
the holes in Republican rationale and Republican complaints right now. Nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office has $700 billion. That's more than a third of all the funding won't be spent till next year or later. So, Senator Murphy, how does that qualify as COVID relief? Well, as you mentioned, this bill is wildly popular amongst the American public. 75% of Americans support it because they know that this is the moment to go big. 80% of people out there don't have enough money to pay their monthly bills. And so that's why you need to put an unprecedented amount of money into the hands of low and middle income Americans. Uh, and I love this argument from Republicans that, you know, this is some progressive wish list. Almost everything in this bill is simply an extension of the programs that Republicans were wildly enthusiastic about back when they were in charge of the White House and the Senate. In fact, they were cheering some of these programs at the end of last year, like the $1,400 stimulus payments. Your question is specific. You know, what about the portion of the spending that is made eligible um, past 2021? Well, let me tell you, the crisis in America's schools is going to last beyond this year. The amount of catch up that kids are going to have to do, the amount of work we're going to have to do to deal with the trauma that has been inflicted on kids who have been out of school for so long is significant. And so, yes, some some of this money is going to be able to be spent um, in the next school year as well, because we know we have a Herculean endeavor ahead of us to try to make sure that kids and families are made whole. Um, but the bill is popular because it's putting money right now into the hands of families who desperately need it. Now, we've heard Chris Wallace ask about this so many times in the last few weeks, specifically around the question if money is being spent outside of this fiscal year, is it really around, is it really about COVID? Yeah, and, and emergency relief as he as Right. He and, I, you know, I just really appreciated Chris Murphy's answer here about, well, there's two parts that I think Chris Murphy does really well here. One, dispelling and kind of eviscerating the Republican argument that this is too progressive or too generous to the American public when people have been out of work for literally for a year now in some cases. I thought the way Chris Murphy kind of gave that answer I thought was effective, but a lesser politician would have stopped there, right? Chris Murphy continues on to the very specific question around money being used outside of 2021. And he has very, you know, clear examples that there are a lot of institutions, a lot of places that are going to be dealing with the effects of COVID with their own populations they serve, with rebuilding their business, with just reimagining operations more broadly. If you... You know, Chris Murphy talks about schools and how much schools are going to have to do, even once they go into in-person learning, to really stay safe. But, you know, I think about so many businesses and industries where it's not about just waiting for things to go back to normal. There will not be a normal for them to go back to for the foreseeable future. I'm thinking of like small theaters, small community theaters. Yeah, yeah. What the heck are they going to do, right? And so this is not an issue that's going to be solved right away in the next few months. And so I really appreciated that Chris Waller, I, I appreciate that Chris Murphy knew enough about the bill and enough about the Fox News Sunday audience to kind of underscore both of those things. Chris Murphy came ready for the Fox News audience, I guess yeah, I would say. Yeah, I, I would say that he's probably given the best answer to this question that we've heard since yeah, we have Yeah, I would 100% agree. And later in the interview, Chris Murphy talks about how this same level of support was not too much for Republicans earlier in their pandemic when there was actually less death from COVID. 
just so many important points that Murphy ties together over and over and over again throughout this interview. So just really well done. Brendan, what's your moment in politics that you want to talk about? Well, it's, again, we're right on the same course here, Naomi, because for me, the thing about politics I wanted to talk about was looking at Republican arguments against this bill. Oh, interesting. Which is now a law, so I guess we should call it that. But the reason I thought this was interesting is that this is a, a, certainly the law is very, very important. And for those shows that chose not to talk about the law this week, I thought that was kind of irresponsible. And I'm looking at you, Meet the Press. They hardly talked about it. But it's also interesting from just a pure political communication perspective, because as has been said, this law is very, very popular with the American public, and not one single Republican voted for it in Congress, either the House or the Senate. And so what is exactly the Republican argument against the bill when even when, first of all, it's so popular nationally and popular within their own party? So I thought it would be important to start a little bit with some of the basic background around the bill, particularly since Face the Nation did such an excellent job providing that framework at the start. So here's just a brief note that appeared at the top of the show by Mark Strassman. President Biden will spend this week selling his new deal for COVID America. After a year defined by loss, the American Rescue Plan becomes Washington's nearly $2 trillion lifeline. Potentially transformative, how it expands the social safety net. Two pandemic unemployment programs will extend into September and add up to an extra $300 a week in benefits. Multi-billion dollar hikes in housing aid, food stamps, and Obamacare subsidies. $50 billion for small business relief. And $350 billion in aid to state and local governments, radioactive to many conservatives as a bailout for blue America. Despite broad public support, not one Republican in Congress voted for the package. So speaking of that quote-unquote bailout for blue America, I thought it was interesting to hear on that very same episode of Face the Nation, Margaret Brennan speak with Republican Governor Asa Hutchinson from Arkansas. He's a face we're seeing more and more on Sunday. He was on last week, I believe, right? Yeah, yeah. Your state's going to get $4 billion from this American Rescue Plan. Many of your constituents are going to take home these $1,400 checks and thousands of dollars in tax credit. Uh, Isn't this good for your state? Well, there's many good parts of the bill, and that's important to remember. There's rental assistance there for people who need it. There's food assistance in there. Uh, There's also uh, money in there for arts. Uh, humanities, uh, really across the board, there's increase in spending. Some of the most important elements of it would be uh, trying to recover the lost learning in our schools uh, over this last pandemic year. I think we've done better because we didn't close our schools, but uh, there's still lost learning we got to make up for. So there's great investments in there. Uh, I know in your previous guest, you talked about uh, why the Republican opposition, well, is just simply too large. And for a state like Arkansas, uh, we're going to be getting more money than we had in the last CARES Act funding. We have a balanced budget. We have a surplus. 
And uh, the challenging thing is that while there's so many good things in this bill, they've given us a double whammy uh, by saying, first of all, we're gonna distribute the money to the states, not based upon population, mm -hmm. but based upon your unemployment rates. That costs us $390 million. Well, it's good to have a Republican defending this law now. Yeah, he spent way more time I defending know. it than he did saying there's a problem with it, including defending the arts and pr I, when I first <laughs> and the humanities. I know. When I first heard that, I was like, oh, now he's getting to the problems with it. But no, that's in the list of here's the great things about this bill. So that was surprising. And his main frustration is that they're not getting as much as other states because it's based on unemployment and not on population. Even though it was Republicans who were about, we need to target this to the people who need it and not just to everybody. Like, that was the that was what Republicans on, in Congress were saying. And now here's a Republican who's upset with the allocation, who's upset with that. It's a mess. It's crazy. So anyway, I thought that was very interesting to see because he's kind of on the side of I don't support the bill, but it's got so many great things in it. Yeah. Well, there was one point in the interview with Bill Cassidy where he was saying how much money California is getting. And it's like, this is just, you know, money to your Democratic state friends or something to that effect. And I just wish Chris Wallace would be like, there's also 40 million people in California. Maybe that's why they got a bigger percentage than, I don't know, Nebraska. It, there's actually a really great breakdown that I found um, that I'll, I'll go ahead and put in the show notes that talks about how much each state is getting, blue states versus red states, states that voted for Biden versus voted for Trump. And I think overall, you can just see it, it, it's mostly based on the size of the state, not right. related to their to their politics. Right. So speaking of states that and, and folks that are maybe didn't vote for the bill, but are kind of enjoying the benefits of the bill, like Governor Hutchinson here. Nancy Pelosi had some choice words for Republicans like that when she was interviewed on This Week. Let's start with the COVID relief package. I outlined some of the benefits just now, but there was unanimous opposition on the Republican side. Most said the package was too large, not targeted at COVID relief. And our next guest, Senator John Barrasso, argues that it will overheat the economy and fuel inflation. What's your response? I totally disagree. The fact is that it's strongly bipartisan across the country. It's only in the Congress of the United States where the Republicans have refused to meet the needs of the American people, where they didn't vote, as I said of them, uh, vote no and take the dough. You can be sure that all of their states and communities will be benefiting from this and they won't be complaining about it back home. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Vote no and take the dough. Oof. She's one of a kind. She truly it is. It's like she's like trained for decades to be the top leader in the house. Yeah. Kind of crazy. Kind of crazy. But again, here's that argument that it's bipartisan in the country. It's just not bipartisan in the Congress. But there was another interesting point that we heard from Republicans when they were challenged on this issue of, you know, why aren't you supporting a bill that's so popular even among Republicans? It's a point we've heard before, but I wanted to cover it and because we heard it again this week from Chris Christie on the panel with George Stephanopoulos. Take a listen. I see you smiling right there, but setting aside the governors, it, it, the bill does have 70% support. That means a lot of Republicans are supporting it. George, look, if you give away money, um, it usually is supported. Right. If you give somebody something for nothing, they usually say, sure, I'll take it. 
Um, that's not shocking that this would have that kind of support at all. Um, it's going to be what are the ramifications for it down the road on governors having been one. If you're going to give me money that I don't have to raise taxes to raise revenue myself in my state, um, we we've seen the budget increase over the last four years from 34 billion to 44 billion in four years. We've seen taxes go up every year. And now my state, which did not have a revenue loss beyond about one and a half percent, is now going to get six billion dollars more from the federal government. Man, if you're the governor, you're like, sure, you're going to send me that money and I'll spend it. Of course, I'll spend it. So I've heard this argument before, and you probably have as well from Republicans saying, oh, well, of course, Republican voters support it because they're getting money. So, of course, they're for it. And that's just like very patronizing to voters. It's very dismissive of their own voters. It's saying like, oh, they don't really know what they're talking about. They don't realize that there are problems with this bill. They're just they're just one in the money. You know, they're just greedy. And, you know, you show them money and they're going to vote for it. And that's just like such a patronizing way to look at your, you know, to talk down to your own voters. Absolutely. And. It's interesting to me the lengths in which some of these Republicans will go to say it's too generous, knowing full well how much people are hurting in their respective districts or states. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I wanted to I wanted to do a little fact check on Christy here, because unlike the panel of this week where we just heard Christy giving his theories of why people support the bill nationally on Face the Nation, we actually had data. Imagine that about why people were supporting the bill nationally. We had Anthony Salvanto, their polling and elections director, and he was describing a recent poll that asked exactly that. Right. That bill is extremely popular. It has been all throughout, 74% approval. Now, one interesting thing, Margaret, is you don't get those big approval numbers without across the board at least some support from all partisan corners. So Democrats overwhelmingly in favor. Republicans, even half of them, even though, as you mentioned, it did pass on that party line vote in Congress, and independents in favor as well. Now, why is that? First of all, it hits their pocketbook. People tell us that they think this bill is going to help them personally. That's always important, as well as, of course, the national economy. There's another component to this, too, in that they think it is going to help working class and lower income people, who, of course, tell us they've been so hard hit by the pandemic, even more so than the wealthy, always associated with high approval numbers for something like that coming out of Washington, Margaret. So beyond the idea of saying being dismissive of voters for liking a bill that helps them, I think my question for Republicans who are dismissive of that is, shouldn't the bills you're passing help people? Shouldn't that be the goal of these bills? That there's an immediate effect, that there's an immediate effect on the people you're trying to quickly help. Yeah. I don't know. I think Republicans are going to continue to struggle with this conversation. And it's no surprise that various media analysts have noted how much time Republican media has spent over the last few weeks talking not about this bill or their opposition to it, but about things like Dr. Seuss and cancel culture and whatever other thing is is lighting the world on fire in a cultural way. I mean, they do this with a variety of issues, so it shouldn't be quite the surprise that they're doing it here with COVID relief, but it is something we've seen before. 
I guess I'm just surprised that on such an important bill that there was such great opposition to, there aren't stronger arguments where right. I like where I myself sit back and say, Oh, oh interesting. Good point. Yeah, interesting point. That's important. That makes sense. I get it. So lots of interesting angles around this American rescue plan. I'm actually, we haven't really talked about this, but it's kind of dumb that we're having this conversation now that the bill is law. A lot of these conversations could have happened last week when it was still a bill and not law. And I feel like the purpose of a lot of these interviews is so that people understand what just passed and what they're going to be eligible for in terms of support. It was not for the purpose of civic engagement or to get get you to kind of do your own organizing in person or virtual to in support of these bills or to convince anyone. When the when this bill was a bill and up for negotiation, there was actually very little talk on the Sunday news show about it. And for a bill of this size, which as Chris Wallace has mentioned multiple times, is substantial. It's surprising that this wasn't discussed for weeks in the same way that we saw kind of the healthcare plans under President Trump. We are talking about it now, and they have been helpful, so still still valuable, for sure. Yeah, I don't know. I think I, I would disagree with you a little bit there. I think there was some conversation, certainly not enough conversation about the details of the bill, especially considering the size of the bill and the potential impact of the bill. But I think it's wholly appropriate to have important discussions about a bill that is as big as this one is, and that is going to be affecting now states and localities and individuals across the country in a big, big way. I mean, that's a huge political impact. And Republicans should be asked about why they stood in opposition to something that is going to help their own districts and their own constituents and held accountable for it. Yeah, more to come on that front for sure. Well, that takes us to show ratings with the new one to five yes. point system that we had engineer friends be very excited for us. Absolutely. So for me, I looked at Fox News Sunday and State of the Union. I think for Fox News Sunday, I would give it a four. I want to give it a 3.5, but nope. I'm not. I'm four. not going to do it. I would give it a four. I thought their interviews, particularly with Senators Cassidy and Murphy, were really valuable to hear about how the parties are thinking about this new plan, this new law. And on State of the Union, I think I would give I think I would give a four as well. Mostly good use of my time. Little thing the little things that bothered me were in retrospect pretty little. Brendan, what it's are you... still just a good show, not a very good show, you're saying? Correct. Okay. What is your rating, Brendan? Well, it's very easy on Face the Nation. Five, absolutely a very good show. Excellent, excellent job by Margaret Brennan and the whole team in, in focusing in on what's important this week and informing the audience. This week, I had a lot of issues with, so I'm just going to give it a three. Okay. I do think that it... it it moved the conversation forward in certain ways, so I don't think it was a bad show, but it certainly did not did not wow. And then there kind of needs to be a bit of a discussion here about what happened on Meet the Press. Meet the Press decided not to talk about the bill that was passed, the dramatic bill that took place. And maybe they felt, as you mentioned, Naomi, that this had already been talked about enough and it's already passed. But as instead, they decided that they wanted to talk about what was described by Chuck Todd as the battle for democracy. 
And all of these laws that are over 200 laws that are going into effect, or no, I'm sorry, that are being proposed nationwide by Republicans, Republican legislators to reduce the ability of people to vote. Welcome back. We're going to take a special look this morning at the fight underway over our democracy. Republicans have proposed more than 250 laws in 45 states designed to limit mail-in early in-person voting and even election day voting. And Republicans may have the power to achieve these goals. They hold legislative majorities and the governorships, as you can see here, in 24 states. And they have proposed some restrictive election laws in 22 of them. The bills would likely have the effect of curtailing the early vote methods used primarily this past election by Democratic voters and shift more voting to Election Day when recently Republican voters have dominated. All told, the bills amount to the greatest effort to reduce ballot access, particularly for African-Americans, since the Jim Crow era. I think that's a hugely important issue. I think that they, the NBC team, NBC News team at Meet the Press did a good job in deciding that that was worthy of extended conversation. They had a pretty good overview to start, but then they decided that the brunt of the conversation was just going to be what they call kind of a, we're going to talk to both sides on this issue. They talked to Stacey Abrams, and then they talked to the lieutenant governor of Georgia. He was a Republican. Oh, interesting. And he was a Republican who was broadly speaking against these laws that other Republicans are passing. So while they said they were going to cover both sides of the issue, they kind of covered one side of the issue in a kind of a bipartisan fashion. So that was a bit of a head scratcher. And I feel like it didn't get to the heart of what Republicans are actually doing, why necessarily they're doing it, what the history is on it. There just seemed to be a lot more depth. If you're going to cover something for as long period of time as they actually did cover it, I expected more more value from the conversations. And the conversation with Stacey Abrams was taken up a lot with mm-hmm. nitpicking related to H.R. 1, the bill that's in Congress right now to combat this by the Democrats. And I don't think that was really the best use of time. So I'm just my question is like, yes, I agree with Meet the Press for choosing to spend the amount of time they did, but I don't think they spent it in the best way they could. So what's your rating again? I'm going to give it a three. I, I think they really could have knocked it out of the park with this, so it's a little disappointing that they didn't mm. they didn't even get to a four. Yeah, I hear that. So Naomi, this week on the dialogue challenge, how about some dialogue around something hopeful and optimistic that you're looking forward to as we see COVID rates going down? I mean, this is a very natural conversation. I'm sure lots of people are having it right now. But just, you know, indulge in some hopeful, exciting fantasizing about the world beyond COVID. Certainly, we're all going to need to continue to be careful, follow health guidelines. But I think at this point, particularly, it's really healthy and really helpful to have some of those fun conversations about something that really isn't going to be a fantasy, hopefully, hopefully in very we'll few soon. months. I love that so much. I think a little bit of hope and levity goes a very long way. If you want to share with us your hopeful daydreams, you can email us at podcast at polylog.com. You can tweet at me at Sodonaomi underscore. You can tweet at me at Beastidal and you can tweet or follow the show at Polylogcast. Thanks everyone. And we will talk with you next week. Bye. Bye.